Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, welcome back, welcome back. Oh, yes. Daniel White Hodgins place in the pace in the, in the place in the place to be. Let me get my words out, man. Oh my gosh. Hey y'all, welcome back to part 2 um of a two-part series here with uh, the good Andre Henry. Um if this is your first time listening to Profane Faith, thank you so much. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Um but there is a part 1 to this. This was uh season 4 episode 1 uh that came out last week and so I'm going to point you back to that uh from last week. It's season 4 episode 1. It's time to leave all white Christian organizations, and that was with Andre Henry. This is part two and the continuing uh, continuation of that conversation. So if you haven't caught part one, highly recommend uh, y'all doing that. So again, part one last week, it's time to leave all white Christian organizations. Uh, I wanted to say a few things, and this will be brief because I know y'all want to hear Brother Andre. I want to go back and hear Brother Andre, uh, even though I did the interview, It's it because uh, he's got some great stuff. Um, as you know, uh, I might have mentioned this last week or at least in some of the programming um, that I put out is that we're exploring a theology of hopelessness and a theology of lament uh, this season on profane faith. I think that's important for a lot of different reasons. Um, I won't necessarily get into all the detail. Maybe uh, I'll explore some of those in a later episode here in the season. But I think it's particularly important because I think for so many of us, we have been taught, right, that the 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 only way to worship god the only way to come to god is with you know positive spirits and to think positive thoughts and you know hopelessness is not in god's vocabulary and i would argue that that's not the case um i think there's plenty of instances especially in the rich uh canon of the old testament where there are plenty of saints that were doubting, that were uh, hopeless, uh, that didn't have really much to them. uh, And we're still, you know, making a way and still pushing forward or just didn't. I mean, the book of Jonah, as you know, uh, ends on a pissy ass note and it ends in um, Jonah. It just ends on a badass note. I mean, we tell the story of Jonah, right? In many Sunday schools or Sabbath school, depending on your tradition. And, um, and it, it, it presents a God, right, that it is, you know, the Jonah and the whale, that is this merciful God and, you know, all this great stuff. And then, but if you really read the story to the end, it ends on a hopeless note, right? Jonah's pissy, God's pissy, and it just ends on a pissy ass note. And you're just like, what the fuck, man? What the literal fuck? And I think for me, that's where I begin to see, again, I've talked about this a thousand times, the intersection of the secular, sacred, and profane. And so I really want to begin to kind of unpack this theology of hopelessness. And I'm so I'm, I'm also working on getting um, 
Oh man, I'm forgetting his name. He is. He actually is is worked on um, from a scholarship perspective. Uh, uh, Miguel de la de la Torre, Doctor Miguel de la Torre, from a scholarship perspective on a theology of the hopeless. And so I want to kind of engage with that because honestly, what did it mean to be in the 1700s, like 1798 or 1719, and to be an enslaved black person? Um, you're being told here's this God that can save you that will protect you, that will take care of you. Um, but yet you're being brutally dehumanized and uh, brutally told this is, you know, this is the way God wants it. And so I don't know. Right. I, I don't know. I and, and I think I think what brings that here, particularly to, you know, to the forefront and looking at um, looking at how we I- I interpret uh, not just the gospel, but um uh, you know, Jesus in general, um, and what, and, you know, and how that looks like. I also want to begin to break down, you know, what does the re, what does the great commission look like, um, without evangelical lenses? Um, I think that's something to really explore, but particularly looking at a hopeless situation, which I would make the argument in case that I think people of color in white spaces is a hopeless, um, spot. And I know that's controversial. And I'm sure there's somebody being like, I don't know, Dan, I get it. It's taken me a long time just to get to that point where I feel, you know, like I can actually publicly say that, but I don't know. I don't see, I feel like I spent so much of my career trying to help white spaces better embrace POCs. Um, and we are just, we've just regressed. And I don't know, um, if those are really genuinely healthy spaces. I know a lot of people right now who are struggling just from a health perspective, because they're just they're consumed with the work in that. And, and and then you're not even consumed with the work that you've been hired to do. I think that's the thing, right? It's like most POC folk, we get into these white run organizations and we're not even doing the work that we were commissioned. That's on our contracts to do. We spend time educating other white people. We spend time being politically correct. We spend time being strategic. We spend time, you know, talking with other POC folks and being like, Hey, you know, what do you think about that? And Hey man, okay. If we invest our energy in this movement, then maybe we can do this over here. And so much of the time, as you heard last week with Andre, and as we are about to hear and hear in a few minutes, uh, is spent looking at, things that don't even really cons- shouldn't be concerning us. Um, and it's frustrating, uh, very frustrating. I want to point you to a few resources here uh, that I've found, you know, pretty helpful. Um, there, One of them is by uh, Anthony Bradley. It's called Black Scholars in White Space, New Vistas in Amer- African-American Studies from the Christian Academy. And um, I know, you know, some of you probably say, ah, but Anthony Bradley, some of his theology. I get it. I get it. And we'll discuss that at some point and we'll engage that. And I'd love to get him on the show. If he's listening, love to get you on the show and talk more about uh, that. But this particular book here really looks and examines that. And I get it. This is, you know, in the academy. But come on, really, what's the difference between the academy and, you know, white evangelical nonprofit, you know, organizations? Uh, I, I, I think they're the same. And, and so it's, it, this is a, uh, it's a community of scholars. And so it's a reader. Uh, he, he just edits this. And so this is multiple perspectives on what it means to be a person of color in all white spaces. Uh, I'll put that link for you in the show notes. He, he actually puts out another, um, book called aliens in the promised land. Why minority leadership, um, is overlooked. Okay. In white Christian churches and institutions. Um, I think that's important because we are overlooked. Oftentimes, I know the other day in my uh, at uh, um, 
at my work. Uh, some new curriculum was coming through. Uh, and as always, the readings did not reflect, uh, you know, one of our mission statements, which is to be intercultural, to be multicultural, to be, you know, race conscious. Um, and so I brought that up. I was just like, hey, I just the books. It's problematic. I think there's, you know, there's there's enough material that's out there that's coming out. And instantaneously, right, instantaneously, the white mind is attacked. The white mind, the white consciousness is aware that, you know, they actually have to change it. So automatically, but it didn't it didn't go there. It this is it came out in the way of, oh, well, I don't well, I don't like being policed with the readings and I don't like feeling like I can't teach the way I want to teach. And I feel like we can just nitpick those readings to, you know, to death. And I we got to stop doing this. and We can't police each other like this. I'm like, wait a minute. When did, right, just wanting to be intercultural become policing? When did all those things then become um, part of this 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 environment now that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, bringing the bringing to the point that, hey, this is not our stated mission statement and, and you're not living up to it. Uh, you know, it's like we're not approving the person who's putting this proposal forward. We're trying to approve this course. And of course, it passed. I didn't vote for it, but it, it, it passed overwhelmingly because overwhelmingly there was white people in the room. And so that voice is overlooked. It's diminished. And that shit gets fucking tiring, y'all. That stuff is so fucking aggravating. And it's even more aggravating when you hear it from other POCs. Okay. Um, so I would make the case that I don't know. I really don't think that there is hope in POCs being a part of white led, uh, organizations, especially Christian organizations. Um, I think it's time for us to exit it. I think it's time for us to a mass exodus, um, out of these organizations because it's produced nothing, um, but right. Shame, guilt, frustration, um, anxiety, death, you know, people who work, especially in higher ed, if you work in that, you know, that Christian, uh, the uh, the intercultural office or the office of diversity, you already know you up against some crazy shit. So we got some problems. <laughs> and so um, I think Andre is just highlighting the bigger issue of what that means uh, to be in these spaces. And I think, you know, the white pushback and again, white pushback isn't just from white people. Uh, whiteness as a culture, as an ideology, whiteness as a system uh, is embedded into many spaces, but especially Christian organizations, Christian evangelical organizations. And it is and you can be the POC who goes in and just says, hey, I am going to, um, you know, I'm going to be the one that helps changes. And so many POCs go in thinking they're going to be the ones that, you know, change it. And they end up coming out frustrated, depressed, anxious, torn up dejected you know the list goes on right and so what's the point what have we invested our energy in our own shit what have we invested in the energy of our skills and this i've been saying this for a long time what if speakers those of us who speak as a profession what have we invested and created our own area i think we're so spread out and we're giving i i i for one am not trying to waste my time and I want to do things that are that are productive, especially the older that I get. I don't have time to mess around and play around. I don't want to deal with foreplay. I don't want to deal with this kind of Christianese foreplay where we just entertain the, the, the cause. I just turned somebody down the other day who was like, oh, we want you to come and talk to us about, you know, uh, race. We're just starting to get it. And, you know, or just, you know, we, we read Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, and we want I was like, look, I'm not the person. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not the one. Y'all need to go and find somebody else. 
or better yet, find a white person to come and talk with y'all about this shit um, because I'm tired. <laughs> and I know a lot of ethnic minorities are out there who are tired as well, sick and tired. Um, and that is what Andre is expressing here. And I think it's important that we listen. And I think that's one of the reasons why there was such a, a great response to this, you know, the first episode last week, because people were like, wow, okay, here it is in real time, right? We're able to see it. We're able to taste it. We're able to, 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 you know, mentally embrace it, uh, and see it for what it is. Um, so what does that next step look like? I really don't know, uh, but I would, you know, and I, and I put myself in this category because I work for a Christian organization and I'm trying to figure out, you know, where, where are the spaces that we can just actually be who we are? And as black folk, I don't know if there are those, 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 that many spaces outside of small micro pockets, right? In the lunchroom, uh, in the corner office, uh, let's go out to lunch and just hang out. And then that'll be our space. Um, and that's not enough for me. That's not enough for me. I, I can't survive that way. Um, and survival is just, is a basic minimum. I can't survive that way. And, you know, and I damn sure can't thrive, uh, in that situation. So without any further ado, I just want to kind of give some context for that. Um, give you a couple resources that I think are important. I'll put those in the show notes. Um, and you know, there's other research studies too, that is, that have come out looking at, uh, POCs, uh, in, in white spaces. So I'll put a couple of those I've written on some of that stuff as well. So I'll put a couple of those in the show notes, whiteoutpodcast.com. And if you haven't already checked out episode one and looked at some of the show notes, go support brother Andre. I think he's doing amazing work. Um, and one of the reasons why I know most of us as POCs don't leave white Christian organizations is because it's money. Just finances are tied to this shit. Uh, and that's frustrating as hell to me um, because we're locked up, right? We're caught up in this, 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 um, you know, the financial game because that, you know, at the end of the day, it is, this is the truth. The lights got to be on, the water's got to run. And if you got kids, you got a family, I mean, that shit's real, yo. Um, you know, theories and, and good ideas don't pay the rent. <laughs> so I get that, which is one of the reasons why I still work for a white led, uh, Christian organization. Um, because we need our pay, we need my paycheck right now. Um, and we, I can't afford to, you know, just to, to walk out on that. And most of us can't, right. We don't have that privilege. We don't, you know, our, maybe our spouses aren't doctors and they're not pulling in upper six figure salaries and stuff. So, uh, that shit is real. Shit is real. All right, enough of that. Here is part two of Brother Andre and I breaking this stuff down. Give it a listen. No, I was like, so I, I pitched that I would write an article about why free thinking is fundamental for social change. You know, that wasn't the headline, but that was the idea, you know. Um, and I thought that I would, I would talk about how Tolstoy and Gandhi and Dr. King and them, if you if you look through, there's a through line in their thought that is basically trying to tell people, think for yourselves. If you can't think for yourselves, you can never change the status quo. You can yeah. never bring about social change. So yeah. that, that's, that's the idea. He looks at it and goes, free thinkers, free thinkers say, like, what is this? Like, it's, you know, people aren't going to care about this. Nobody cares that it's Free Thinkers Day. And I'm thinking, so this is me like trying trying to respond in a constructive way saying, well, the article hasn't been written yet. So it really can be anything. You know, he's like, that doesn't, that sounds, everything's so serious. I'm like, well, it, it could be fun. The tone could be fun. It hasn't been written yet. So oh, we can Lord. shape it. We can shape it to be whatever we think that it needs to be. And I also don't think that the hook, 
I don't think that the hook of the story is that it's Free Thinkers Day and that's why you should read this. The hook of the story is that people are interested in social change right now. They're interested in social movements. People are protesting. Right. People are still talking about Kaepernick. Charlottesville right. had just happened like a few months ago. You know, um, we had the, you know, the March for Your Lives was about to happen. You know, like that, I don't think that had happened yet. I think uh, I can't remember if Stone, if Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was in January or in March. But anyway, we're in a moment where there's a lot of social movements and social activity. So this this article would sit in, you know, that historical context for us. You know, it, so anyway, he wasn't interested in making it better. <clears throat> Just interested in like, I think that because like I didn't actually I shouldn't even try to, you know, try to assume someone's motives. I don't know what he was trying to do, but the Black History, stomping on Black History Month didn't turn out the way that I think that he was expecting. And so he just turned his attention to something else. He's like, well, I'm gonna stomp on this then. And at that point I said, <laughs> at that point I said, okay, I'm, I'm gonna push back on you a little bit. And I said it just like that. I tried to be, you know, I, I don't know how I sound, but I thought I was trying to be, I thought I was gentle. You know, I was like, I'm okay. Right. I'm gonna push back on that a little bit. Um, you know, the article hasn't been written. It could be whatever we want. And then he was just like, well, maybe this isn't ready for publisher feedback. And he just left the meeting, just stormed out of the out of the meeting. Are you serious? Like, I'm dead. I'm dead serious. Oh, OK. <laughs> All right. Now, he really up in them feelings now, boy. He storm he just, out. God damn. Just, just stormed out of the meeting. And I'm sitting here like I'm sitting here with all my subordinates. And I'm just like and I said, OK, and I just. All right. Some about me that people don't know is that I can get real calm. You know, like I be pissed off. I get especially when so like I get I can get worked up about little stuff. But like just for context, my, I blew a tire on the highway, and I didn't even cuss. I just went, okay, I blew a tire. I'm going. Wow, Andre, man, that's I, good, brother. Because I would have just it, it would have been like I, that that Christmas story when I would have been like, oh fuck, but I didn't say fuck. <laughs> Like I did now, I do. I get I get worked up over little stuff, but I but for some reason, when stuff is like it's kind of higher on on the scale. No, I hear you. Yeah, I had the opposite reaction for some reason. So I blew a tire. I just I just said okay. I blew a tire. I pulled over real quick. I changed the tire. Done. So when Cam when Cameron stormed out of the meeting, I got real calm, <laughs> and I just sat back and I said, I'm not going to pretend like that kind of behavior was appropriate. I'm going to take a walk. Meeting adjourned. <clears throat> uh, so that was that was the end. That's like the how that ended, right? Whew. I knew that day I'm not going to be irrelevant very long. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see them writings on the wall. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, because if you can't do the bare minimum for Black people, and I do believe that the bare minimum at a media company is you commit to posting something every day regarding race during Black History Month. Why wouldn't you? You know? Uh, oh, yep. <laughs> why, I mean, why, why I don't understand what, what the problem is. Now, here's the deal. Oh, I forgot to mention this, which we post, remember, 80, art, 80 new articles per week, per uh, month. Right, right, right. I need new articles per week, four new articles per day. And to, to my knowledge, 80 is bigger than any days in any month. I mean, unless, you know, something has changed. Mm-hmm. Ain't no 80-day months on the calendar. 
So, but so, who's going to be who's going to be interested in that, Andre? I mean, come on. <laughs> so you're telling me that of 80 articles, 80 new articles, you can't post 30 regarding race during Black History Month in the Trump era? In the Trump era. That's too much for you. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that day I knew it was the beginning of the end. Um, I, I, de- I determined that I would stay, that I would finish out a year, which would have been nine months from that day. But boy, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, no, go ahead. I, I only made it six more months. Okay. I, I only made it six more months because of the continued, you know, just race fatigue. Just, but oh, <laughs> also, after that meeting, all my decision making power was taken away. <laughs> oh, Lord Jesus. Okay. Okay. All right. So I got to Okay. So you, so I read this in the article because I was reading, yeah. I read it. I read it three times. All right. So, okay. Um, and for those of you listening, I will post this. Some of you may just be catching up on this. And again, I'll put these all in the show notes, whitehodgepodcast.com. But so I got a question. How, because I'm very curious, how did that news come to you that all your decision-making power was being taken away? Well, it wasn't presented to me. Like they didn't like have like a sit down conversation and say, Mm -hmm. Hey, with me personally. Oh yeah. No. So Andre, this is what we think that we should do. How do you feel about that? And give me the chance to say, well, you call, you told me that I'm the managing editor and now you're not having me manage anyone really anymore. And I'm not really editing any, anything anymore. It was just like, we had a group editorial meeting where they said, well, Cameron's gonna, oh, we're thinking about this stuff with the content and Cameron's gonna take over the video. So he's gonna review all video scripts to give his approval. Jesse's going to take over the web. He's a brand manager and he's going to be responsible for the web. And Tyler uh, Huckabee is going to be the editor for the magazine. So he's going to be working with the writers for the magazine. Now, as the managing editor, I I was told at first that I was going to be, you know, having responsibility over the magazine and the web. And then I was also going to be on video. So I'd write my own scripts which I still did, but they started needing Cameron's approval after Black History Month. Now, I was told that it was coincidental. However, I mean, you gotta consider what it looks like from my angle, that everything was cool until I brought up Black History Month, you threw a tantrum, left the meeting, and then next thing you know, everyone else is in charge of all the things that I was supposed to be in charge of. (laughs) wow see see this is and these are these are the things that i that i've tried to tangibly put in place for other whites to understand and not even whites but even black folk um that have adopted white culture and whiteness you know as their mantra for for their own you know self you know gaining purposes or just you know survival purposes but it's like these are the type of things right that 
that fatigue, that that type of environment. I mean, you relocated literally across the country, not figuratively, mm-hmm. but across yeah. the country from one coast to the next into a state that still has stand your ground laws. OK, Florida, just in general, as a black man, is is is, is dangerous. Um, so that, you know, that's that's a, <laughs> a footnote, a big footnote, but a footnote. Um, and then, you know, to come at you. And then to just take away all of it. I mean, yo, I mean, I, I'm sitting here and I'm just, I'm feeling it. Cause it's like, man, I've, I've been in those situations, right? It's like right. when you get put into a situation, I was the director of, of this, you know, this youth you know, over the center for youth ministry. So I was told this is what I was supposed to be doing. So I'm like, great. Uh-huh. Same thing. You said I'm a gatekeeper. In fact, I sat down with soon Chan Ra Ephraim Smith, um, brother, man, uh, another guy from UYWI. And I was like, we need to make some changes because this is like the first time we've got a person of color in charge. And bruh, the, the second it started happening, it was like, well, wait, 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 what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? Like what's, right. what's going on? I feel like as a right. white man, I don't have a voice anymore. Like wow. what, what, what is, what is happening here? I, I, I feel disjointed in the same thing that you, right. That you was told, like, who wants to listen to that? Why should we be taking a course on urban studies? Now, mind you, <laughs> mind you, there's nothing else in the curriculum that has anything to do with ethnic anything. It's just leadership. So I made it required that everybody had to take an urban class. Bruh, I had a revolt, man. We went from like 38 majors down to four. No, I kid you not. They all left because they were like, this is a liberal place. And I'm never going to be in the city and working with those people. Like those people. (laughs) Those people. Right, exactly. I'm like, ooh, ooh, so Lord. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So I'm feeling you, brother. I'm feeling you on every level, bro. It was a fight, fight, yeah. and, and it's a fight at every level, and it is exhausting, exhausting right. at any age and any level at any, you know. And so, anyways, I, I don't mean to cut into you, but just what you're saying, man. I'm resonating so much, and I'm listening to this, and I'm like, oh my bro. gosh, bro. There, there. So I took the boulder across the country with me. Wow. I, 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 I drove across the country, and I brought the boulder with me. And I felt like I need to bring this thing to work. I don't remember if I actually did. I think I did one one day. But the point isn't even about me actually bringing it or not. It's about me feeling like it was an appropriate audience for it. Because Relevant has there's a perception about relevant that they are about social justice and that to at least to some degree, they support black freedom. <laughs> right. They have black people on their podcast from time to time. They have, you know, they have Lisa Sharon Harper from time to time. They had Jamar Tisby on to talk with Mike, Mike McCarg one time and all this other kind of stuff. But in the office, when you talk about actually caring for black people, I mean, clearly the top leadership was not that interested, you know, in listening to their black, the, their black employees tell them yeah, this is how you care for black people. And when I mentioned things that they could do structurally to do so just didn't happen, you know, no real 
conversation about it, you know. Um, I, I mean, the brand manager did talk to me about it, but you have to understand that when you are in an authoritarian structure, right? All all conversations with people who are not decision makers are purely symbolic, you know. So, <laughs> right. So I I appreciate Jesse, you know, talking to me and always validating what I have to say and listening and apologizing on behalf of the dictator, but they're not really meaningful if the dictator does not respond to, you know, what, what, what the employees are saying. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so man. just, I mean, you know, there were three other black, there were two other black people on staff with me and we would go out and <laughs> we would go out to lunch and just like, yep. yep. And then that, that got exhausting. I was like, I can't do black people lunch anymore. Cause black people, <laughs> Black people are just too sad because right. all the black people in this orga- organization are really going through it. <laughs> and like, yeah, <laughs> I right. can't I, I can't even sit here and talk about it because it just, you know, it it stirs it all up before I go back in. Right, right. <laughs> Right. Exactly. 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 You got to go back in and you riled up. Yeah, man. But but let me tell you, I mean, the issues that relevant, they transcend racial insensitivity. Okay, this is a leadership and structural problem with the organization. And I think that it's one that is common in many uh, organizations, especially those that are faith based and at least evangelically adjacent, you know, like I said um, to a reporter the other day, like a lot of times in in this white evangelical world, you have usually a white male who builds this authoritarian structure around their charismatic personality. And there are all kinds of, uh, there are all kinds of ways that it is a structure that is conducive to harm, especially for people of color women, marginalized, uh, people from marginalized groups, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so let me tell you about the day I decided to quit the actual day. I was like, I'm out because there was a lot of stuff that I could say about being an employee there. But the day I, I decided to quit, I think it's telling because it tells you what kind of leadership existed there. <clears throat> I got an instant message from a coworker because the CEO asked one coworker to instant message another coworker to tell me to take the books off my desk. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Yeah, wait, exactly. Wait, I know. I know. Okay. Okay. The CEO told one coworker to I am another coworker to tell me to take the books off my desk. Jesus. There oh. was a thing that relevant about the aesthetic, right? So like anyone like because Cameron wants for the office to look a certain way, you're not supposed to have no pictures on your desk. You you gotta clean it up. You gotta clean up your entire desk at the end of the at the end of the night so that you know when you come in the place looks pristine. Oh Lord! Now <clears throat> I don't I don't think that you should just like have a messy workplace, especially in an open work workspace. Sure, sure. At the same time, resetting your workspace every day is an inconvenience and it's unnecessary. So 
I just didn't understand why someone at the top of the company with so many things to worry about when it comes to this business would care about what you got on your desk. Now, let me tell you about the books that were on my desk. Your book was on my desk at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Because because publishers sent me books. Of course. Because publishers want for relevant to publish book excerpts and all the kind of stuff. So I got a stack of books on my desk because I'm looking through which ones, which ones do I think would be good for us to post, right? I'm literally doing my job. The fact that this man felt like he needed to micromanage the office to that extent. I don't know. It's just it's just typical of of many. I feel like it doesn't it doesn't sound like it's a big deal right now when I'm saying it, but I'm saying like. That is the way that the office was run, you know, right, right. Just micromanagement to the max, not just that, just control, you know, um, employee input was like treated with such disregard. I remember a friend, uh, one of my coworkers had a podcast segment that he, idea and he, he mentioned it and, and the CEO was like, nah, that's nah, I don't, I don't think so. And, and, and the guy, you know, naturally, like when you have an idea, you want to explain a little more and the CEO just snapped. was like, well, it's my show. You know, <laughs> we were, we were all quiet. Like we all was just like, Dang, like why you gotta why you gotta stomp on why you gotta stomp on the idea like that? Right, know? right. Um, so for me it just felt like it was so controlling. And by that time, I mean, let me be really honest with you, like there there were eight months, not eight months, sorry, eight weeks. Eight weeks at the beginning, not the beginning, it was after Black History. There were eight weeks in a row where every Sunday I was so depressed that I thought about just driving my car into the ocean. Like I literally, like that was the, that was my plan. Wow. My plan plan was I'll just drive to the beach because I can tell people I'm driving to the beach. Ain't nobody going to stop me from driving to the beach. No one's going to be worried about me for saying I'm going to, I'm going to have a beach day. I'm going to drive to the beach. I'm going to just drive my car into the ocean. and, And that'll be that. Whoa. And I would start feeling depressed on Friday evening. As soon as, because as soon as I got off of work, I thought about the fact that I had to be back on Monday. So, I mean, that day that I quit, I mean, I would literally like, I was slumped over my steering wheel and like force myself to like, you know, I don't know when your foot feel heavy to put on the gas, you know, like when it feel like it's a struggle to just like tip your foot to, to, to move the gas forward. I got there and I got there and that was just kind of like the final straw. <clears throat> But between that moment and Black history was were all of these racial microaggressions and watching how women were treated in the office like second-class citizens. I mean, all the stuff can kind of be subtle, honestly. You know, like... Yeah. When you talk about the stuff, it's, it's not that, like... It's not, it's not like someone is just, like, coming in and calling you the N-word or something like that. It's, right. just, a, it's just a blatant disregard for, for other people. You know, and I got the sense that we were being treated as though we were just extensions of the CEO. Right. Like, wow. Yeah. Like our ideas and our and our entire personhood and our agency and our worth as people and stuff like that. Just. 
I didn't feel like we were being honored as people, you know? The second piece that I wrote about Relevant talks about like, I, I make that comparison between the the surgeon who talks about the fact that that, sur- that medical doctors work on people is a moral burden. And what I didn't go into though was he, he describes the way that he interacts with patients, knowing that it's a moral burden to work on people and how he handles these people with care, you know, with respect, you know. I just didn't feel like the CEO treated us that way at all, you know. Um, and I'm finding, well, I already knew. <laughs> I'm finding though that there, I mean, I already knew that there were a lot of people that felt that way. I mean, almost everybody in the office at the time that I was there wanted to quit. Um, and there's such high turnover there. and. I found out that there were 13 people that were waiting to talk to the press while I was there because a reporter called me to try to get the story. And I I didn't want to talk about it because I was still working there and it would jeopardize my employment, I figured. Um, But I'm finding out now since publishing that article uh, that um, there's a long list of people that have a story like mine, but it may not have to do with race, it may have to do with gender, and, or it may not have to do with gender, but it may just have to do with, you know, appreciating the work that they've done, you know, being spoken to like an adult, yeah. you know, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Brother, I mean, this is, um, I mean, I appreciate you sharing, man, the hurts and, you know, and the, and the, and the realness of that. I mean, um, you know, I think Austin, Channing Brown says it the best at the beginning of her book, you know, white people are exhausting. You know? <laughs> um, and I would, you know, I would, I, I would add that, you know, white culture, uh, white systems are exhausting. Um, yeah, they really are. And, and just exhausting to death. I mean, that's the real deal. I mean, I've, I've had several friends, uh, commit suicide over the last, you know, five years. Oh my um, gosh. African-Americans, you know, highly educated, highly talented, but, you know, um, it's, it, this, it, that, that's why that, that particular part, man, just that, that gets me, man. Cause that's, oh man. I well, mean, when you think don't people don't understand that it is the microaggressions that kill yes, us. Yes. Like white people think it's all about the overt and extreme forms of racism, but it really is. It's the everydayness of me you got to understand, like, I was there when Donald Trump said shithole countries. <laughs> yeah. And I had and I had to fight with Cameron and Jesse about responding to that until we did a video. That's exhausting. That's emotional labor, you know? Um, I Austin Channing Brown is the author I was talking about in my article where we were pushing for her to be our artist feature. When I say we, it was me and Kathy, the other Black woman on staff, pushing for her to be our artist feature. I mean, author feature in the magazine. It seemed like it was going to happen. Then she got bumped, you know, to the back. She got a 60 word blurb on her book. MLK 50 was coming up and there's a perfect opportunity for us to talk about how the civil rights movement hasn't been completed. And that didn't get the, the space that it deserved, you know, and it's all these slights. It's all the slights to black people that happen right, right. over and over again. 
you know, and then it was like me packing up my life and coming over there thinking I was going to do a job that they wouldn't let me do. And then I just became a voice on the podcast and a face in the videos. Mm. And at a certain point I go, man, like, am I being tokenized right now? Like I'm a token right now. Talk about it. They took a they took away all my leadership and then said and they re started trying to restructure how all of editorial was going to be and they made me an individual contributor without sitting me down and saying Andre we know that you packed up your packed up your life and you came over here to be the managing editor and you know we're just finding that maybe the thing that we need more is an in- individual contributor how do you feel about that you know um, and negotiate something with me it was just they just decided they were going to do it. And that's what I mean by like, you know, treating us as though we're just extensions of the CEO's vision. Like we're not pawns, you know, we're we're not slaves. You know, we don't just we don't just do whatever you tell us to do, you know, and we don't just get in line with whatever vision you have. Like we're full people. You have to talk to us. You have to treat us with dignity and honor and respect, you know, Um. Same thing with, you know, just telling me I'm going to reset my workspace in the middle of the day. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, And so it's this is also what what Nelson Mandela talked about in his um, in his autobiography. He said, I don't know when I became political. It was it was the thousands of little slights, you know, that that radicalized him. And what social scientists are talking about with with black people saying it's like it's really the microaggressions that like they do such damage on our mental health because it's like we're it's like the air we're breathing in is anti-blackness, you know, and it's not overt. It's yes. not that these people in the office hate me, but it's that every time they have the opportunity to care for black people, which I told someone else, what I told someone else the other day that still works there. You know, it wasn't like an argument. I just, I still have friends in the office, you know, so I'm in touch with them. And I told them care is an action verb, you know, Mm. it's not, it's not an assumption you make about yourself. It's not a disposition that you hold internally. Care is something that you're either doing. And for this company to have so many opportunities to care for black people and being told how they can do it and still just choosing not to take those opportunities. It doesn't matter if you do it nicely or if you do it with hostility, it's the outcome is the same, like black lives, black needs, um, all those things are just not a priority to you. Hmm. And that's what, that's, that's what does it to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and that's Victor Lewis. Um, I'm sure you've seen uh, Color of Fear and, and whatnot and, you know, that whole documentary series and whatnot, man. Um, you know, he talks about, you know, the lethal racism that we, particularly as black people, receive, you know, doesn't necessarily come from the Klan members and neo-Nazis. And, and you know, like, yes, that's a relevant thing. And that's, you know, it has an emergence now, especially in the Trump era. But it comes from well moral church going folks right. that be- think they're believers of right or believe that they're that they're doing right but yet still have that microaggressions they still have those blind spots and will continue to shun out 
um, uh, black folks at, at any level, right? It's like, and 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 then and the same goes for particularly white progressives, right? It's like they ride the brake mm-hmm. of of any kind of progress or any kind of like you put me in charge, you made me in charge of I'm doing my job, but yet now when it comes to me actually enacting that, now you take issue, which is why I truly believe, I really believe this that. If an organization is to succeed that has multiculturalism or interculturalism in its mission statement or desires to be diverse, it, it cannot be run by white folks. <laughs> no, I hear that, man. You know, like straight up. I hear that, you know, like so I think someone asked me about like they were saying, like, well, isn't this a problem? Isn't this more than a relevant problem? Isn't it more than a Cameron Strain problem? Isn't this an issue in the larger, like, white evangelical world Hmm. that that you're pointing out that they're not confronting this moment that we're in where there's almost like a revival of white nationalism globally? Right, Right, right. And they have a point. I say, you know, listen, like, you should look at relevant like a case study, you know, rather than an anomaly, you know? <laughs> yes. Come on, preach. Like it's a, it's an instance, <laughs> right? In a larger pattern. And yeah, like there are a lot of organizations that they can't, they can't respond to this resurgence of white nationalism in any meaningful way. Because they're a part of the system, you know, they're a part of it. Oh, and so she yeah. asked, you know, well, what, what do you think that's going to mean in the future? And I mean for the future of, you know, these spaces. And I'm saying, well, people of color and black people are just going to have to, you know, establish their own spaces where the, the priorities that they have are shaped by our experiences of marginalization so we know, you know, that we need to put these structures in place. I mean, let me let me be straight up. I Come mean, I'm, I'm talking with a lot of different former relevant employees and a lot of people have different postures toward this whole thing. And it's very interesting to talk with some of some white former employees about what's going on and what needs to be done. When I talk to black people who have been guests or consumers or former employees, what they say about relevant is that a restorative justice process is warranted where people who have been harmed can express their can express their experience to the person who harmed them. And many of them also have come to the conclusion that a person who treats people the way that Mr. Strang has should not be a CEO of a company, you know? Yeah. Okay. And, but then there are others who, for them, Mr. Strang is the center of the story, not the people who have been harmed. And so everything is viewed through the lens of how does it help him to heal and get better? You know? Right. And to where, and so 
the idea that like we would have a restorative justice process is like you're you're overstepping. You don't have the right to that. <laughs> and yeah. I, I thought about that, and I go, man, white people really do think entirely differently from me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it a, yeah. It it's an entirely different worldview in whiteness. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't get the hyper individual um, stance that says, uh, okay, so for me, what I hear, right? When someone says, who are we to tell a man what to do in his business? To me, you're saying, I can I can treat my slaves however I please. Ooh. That's what I hear. Like there's <laughs> there's a deep logic of capital of capitalism. Yes. yes. In that statement, right? Yes. That says the harm like it's the the business is my property. Therefore, I can do what I want and it doesn't matter who was harmed in the process of me conducting my business. In fact, Sometimes people express this logic of, well, it's a necessary, it's a necessary thing. So there, there are folks even among the affected who say, well, hasn't relevant produced enough good content? Like, let's not throw the baby out with the bath, with the bathwater. Like, why should the whole thing go away? Um, I am of the opinion that I would like to see a relevant company or a relevant like company endure in the future. And I, I care about relevant, always love the brand. I want for, I want for the company to endure. But like I said elsewhere, if you heard that there was a surgeon at your hospital under whose care 30 people have died in operations, okay, you don't want to see that doctor, do you? You know? So why would I trust this person who has proven over and over again that the people who are under his care uh, leave with mental health issues, they leave with trauma, some of them walk away from the Christian faith because of the hypocrisy they saw in the company, you know, all, all of these things. Why would I let that person lead more people? Why would I put more people, you know, why would I put more people in that context? And the idea that we don't have a responsibility to those people who are under that type of leadership or would be under, under that type of leadership in the future is foreign to me. I'm sitting here thinking my ancestors, one of my ancestors said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. There it is. One of my ancestors said that, right? One of my, and my ancestors through collective action, um, they fought oppression and won in many ways together in the collective. You know, there was this solidarity among them. So it's just a very different thing for me to listen to some, and I'm not trying to criticize what some of the, what some of the affected have said, but it's just been interesting listening to some of the white folks that have been affected and the way that it, it, it seems very individual and some of those capitalist logics even playing out in the way that they relate to other people who have experienced the same harm. And I go, well, <laughs> I don't know, guys. Uh, that, I think that speaks to your point of saying like, even if the, if even some of the white people who have been harmed still look at it in this individualistic capitalist way, yeah. 
then how can they build those structures that will prevent this harm in the future, you know? And I don't know if I could say that no white people can do that, but I but I am asking questions, you know, about like, well, if that is if that is the way that we're that some people are conditioned to view the world, yeah, then man, we're in trouble if the, if they're the only people who are building organizations for black and brown people to enter because yes, like I said, for some of this stuff, it's a given, and some of the stuff that I'm saying that we should that we should be requiring, like we should be putting public pressure on different companies to do. Some of this to me is common sense. I think that you should have an HR department that does not answer to the CEO so that they can, um, like a third party HR company, you know? I, th- I, think that, I think that that's fair, you know? Or whether it's third party or not, just there's an there's a human resource uh, person or, or department that can do something about employees that are experiencing harm. I don't, I don't think that that is an overreach for people to ask for. And it, it brings up the thing for me too, where it's like, when we talk about the things that black people say are required for our freedom and safety, they often benefit everyone, you know? Who doesn't, who doesn't benefit from, you know, um, yeah, who, who doesn't benefit from the, from the very, uh, provisions that Black people have been fighting for in this country. I, I don't know. I don't think. I don't think. I don't think you can name a group that doesn't. Yes. Yes. I mean, and so much of this is so complex, and I'm just you know, and which is why I've really you know tried to to, to process through, and you know, and part of season four with the podcast is, you know, what does, what does the theology of, of hopelessness look like? What does God look like in the hopelessness? I feel like we've always wanted to look at like, man, I can't imagine what somebody was thinking who still believed in God, but in 1717, 1719, (laughs) who was black. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. I can't imagine what that looked like. Right. It's like you go through this whole revolution and you're right. thinking, oh man, if you fight for us, we'll get right. you. You know, this is this is this is freedom for everyone. Right. You know, 1776, and we still have slaves, right? We needed a whole civil war. That stuff wasn't solved over reconciliation. That stuff wasn't right. solved over, you know, coming to speaks and everything. And so right. I'm trying to figure out what does that look like in an era where it's not just Trump is just the the sore. There's a there's a there's a deeper malignant malignancy that goes well beyond the sore of it. People talking about, oh, he's going to get impeached. So what? Right. So right, what? Right. You right. know, it's uh, five years too too late. Um, <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out what do we do in the midst of this because. I, 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 as somebody who still believes in God, still believes in Jesus, still believes in those things, you know, what does that look like? You know, us moving forward, what does church look like? And I don't know. I don't know if enough people are willing to actually step into that. And so I think we, you know, right. We try to fool ourselves like, oh yes, this is great. This is great. But we continue to see these things, right? We continue to see these places that say, oh, we're for you. It's like, like you said, it's like what the ancestors said. If you're making it for us, but you don't involve us, then it really ain't for us. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> like these spaces want us in there because it makes them look good. Right. They know that it's not they know that it doesn't look good to be an all white organization. Right. The optics are off. 
So we need to get some black and brown people in here. But they've already established the space as Glenn Bracey does in his work. I'm really appreciating Glenn Bracey for articulating this, that they set these spaces up first and foremost as white institutional space. And so they want us in there. They want us in there, but they want us to remember this is white space. And you better not be messing around with the boundaries of white space, because if you do, there will be consequences, you know? And like you said, like, as you were talking, I thought about like, it's 2019 and we, and even though like, we don't have like plantation slavery, like we did, you know, um, at least it's not like the common practice in the South the logics of that are still at work, even in normal businesses. (laughs) Right. Right. Like like I said, like for someone to say, well, who are we to tell uh, a company that, you know, they owe their workers, um, they owe their workers anything, you know, or that, or that the CEO should step down. Well, I mean, if the CEO has been abusive to their workers, then, we do have a right to do that, you know, because we're not talking about we're not talking about their right to lead, you know, and we're not talking about their right to buy and sell things. We're talking about their right to hurt people and they don't have that right. You know, where do we get the idea that that's just a part of a, that that business should just have casualties like that? Right. Right. That seems like an old idea. It is. No, it <laughs> that is. Seems like a, that seems like an old idea to me. Well, and it's just like these places that, you know, and this just happened recently in, me, in my organization, right? We, you know, we claim that we're city center. We got billboards all up over the city. Um, you know, we're we're trying to recruit. But, you know, here's an opportunity. We have an opportunity to partner with a community organization in the community. Uh, uh, you a walking distance from from the from the organization. You don't even have to get on the transit. You can just walk right over. Uh-huh. Um, to partner with them, they needed a, they needed an academic institution to help them with program evaluation. They're gonna get two hundred fifty thousand dollars, of which we can probably pocket most of that money openly to use our resource to use our people right to do the re- the research. It's an easy open shut thing, right? Open shut. All you got to do is just write the write the the grant. Open shut. It's is two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Let's just go through the hoops and get two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Uh huh. What happens? No, no, we can't do that. No, because uh-uh. that is just—it's—it's it's too quick a turnaround. Yeah. You know, wait. Oh. All, all, wait. What? What? All we got to do? We already have a principal investigator. This is an organization that we've partnered with before. They're not unknown. They've been on campus before. No, 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 no. We can't do it. That's just that. That's just that we can't do it. We just can't do that right now. It's it's too fast. It's too it's too fast turnover. And so they're gonna you know. And I'm just like. Meanwhile. <laughs> Meanwhile, you continue to lay out the red carpet for a history that you want to bring back of white European ancestry. Right. You know, this 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 notion. And we cover it all right with what's called, you know, in the populace dog whistles. Right. You know, (laughs) you you, you know, these nonverbal verbal affirmations of whiteness. And so I'm just like, huh. What does that mean on a larger scale? And so I don't know. I don't have the answers. I really don't. I mean, I can analyze it. I can tell you what the conclusions are, but I don't have an answer on how to combat that because so much of it is shook up. And like I said, that's why I'm just like, I don't I don't think organizations really deserve us as black folk. And I know that's a strong statement. 
Um, uh, but I, I don't know. I've been, I, I've been, you know, it's, I know that it is a strong statement, but the more that I think about it, it's like a reluctant conclusion that I'm coming to, you know? Yeah. It's like, I don't want to feel that way, but it's like, when I left Relevant, I, I really asked myself some, some big questions and I said, I think I asked myself, do you need to be a part of an organization that is explicitly anti-racist? Do you need to work for yourself or for another person of color or black person? Right. You know, like I, I started rearranging some things in my head. And for a little while, I literally was like, I will be homeless on the street before I submit to another situation like this. Wow. You know? And I, I, I literally, uh, and I meant that, you know, right. I meant that. Luckily, I work with Nikki Toyamasito at Evangelicals for Social Action. You know, she's a Japanese American woman and is a wonderful, wonderful executive director. You know. Yeah, yeah, she's great. And it's because she has an awareness of the kinds of things that happen in these. You know, in these different organizations. Why is she aware of that? I'm assuming because she has an experience as a person of color and can avoid those, you know, is, you know, is cognizant to avoid those things, right? Um, I don't know if we can continue. I mean, I guess we can, but honestly, I, I just don't think that white people are interested in giving up power and sharing no. power in these places. I just don't no. think that they are. No. And so it's like, you know, for folks who are like, you know, because this happens with churches, you know, black people, people of color, we fight with their pastors to talk about racism and racial justice and stuff like that. Right. I mean, like, that costs you something. Right. And how long are you going to pay that cost when, you know, you could just build your own space where you don't have to fight that battle anymore? You know, right. Which is exactly why I say what I say. And and, and I say that based off of so my wife works for a nonprofit organization, but it's it is not a faith based organization, but Uh it's set up and it has intricacies of a lot of the same talk that we talk about at all these damn conferences that all of us go to that never seem to really have any tangible results coming Mm -hmm. out of them. Right. It's like, Mm -hmm. goddamn, CCDA has been around for 30 years, but it's like. Lawndale still got all kind of shit problems going on over there, man. And that's not to say anything against per se that, but I'm simply saying we got some bigger things here. And like you said, it's like, how do I reconcile a God that, right. That, 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 that could have stopped those bullets that if, that if God is all powerful, they could stop these things. But, but God didn't. And for 300 plus years, didn't stop the enslavement of people and the ongoing blah, blah, blah. But she works for an organization, man, where it is run by, a queer ethnic minority person who gets it, who understands what it's been like because she's been a part of organizations where she is. So it's run a different way. We talk about decentering whiteness. It's run a different way. There is humanity built in to the system. Yes, we all have to function in capitalism, neo-capitalism. I get that. But we don't have to lose our humanity within that. And that's where I feel like it gets in. I mean, the Native Americans, the indigenous folks told us, right? It's like, man, the white man will bury you in paperwork, you know, bury you in legalities of what you have to do and what you can't do and where you. I mean, just look up any privacy notice. (laughs) We all say we read, right? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? 
will bury you in that stuff. And so I think, man, there's a different way to do it. And I'm just not sure, like you said, the power is wanting to give up. You know, I work for an organization that says, oh, we're intercultural, but yet everybody in senior administration is white. Right. Right. Okay. But we're good. <laughs> we're good. We're good with the numbers. We're good. You know. Okay, but, okay. Let me ask you a question because this is something that I, that I feel that I see a lot of the time, right? People, they express these kind of values of diversity, you need all the kind of stuff. But when it comes down to like taking the action to diversify that, to diversify that team, I feel like a lot of white people are reluctant to actually say, you know what, I'm going to look for a person of color for this position, right? Right. Like that is my, <laughs> right. You know and so it, we end up, we end up in the same situation every time because because there's so many bad, I, there's so much unlearning that white people have to do. People who actually believe that they're white, like they, there's so much unlearning they have to do, like to understand that if you have, like I said before, the white people are taken care of. Like in this society, they are the default human being. They are the first pe types of people that you think of when you say people. Right. All that stuff. So they're gonna have jobs. There's nothing wrong with you saying, we need to hire a person of color for this position. You know, I mean, I, I guess it's, I guess it's, it's illegal for you to, you know, say, I'm only going to do that. You know, you have to, you have to consider the, the resume, you know? Right. But, but there's nothing wrong with having a, a core value that says like, we, we, we see the value in having a person of color here. So, we're also not just gonna wait for them to come to us. We're gonna go and figure out how do we find leaders uh, that are not white that can help this company move forward. But then even then, like if you bring them in and the, and the spaces, you know, it's white institutional space and you're trying to protect it as white institutional space and you're just bringing them into a context of harm. So you gotta unlearn that too, you know? Right. You gotta you gotta deal with your anti-blackness so that you can take so that you can uh, submit to leadership or um, accept receive leadership I should say receive leadership from you know people of color and black people it's a lot a lot a lot <laughs> I mean in that and again this goes back to you know the pyramid of white supremacy at the bottom of it is like indifference right mm. ah, there's two sides to every story right it's like come on mm -hmm. I mean you know mm -hmm. Michael Brown was charging the officer I mean what do you want him to oh! do. No. Oh no. Oh, get, get him out of here. Right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, why why would we I mean, come on, as the police officers, just like, you know, Philando Castile was reaching for something. I mean, that's right. just there's two sides to every story. And right, and that goes on back to because this is a conversation we just had about hiring policies in our organization. Like really and, and and it comes back to, right, the white indifference. Like, well, we're gonna hire the best person for the job. Right. Exactly. And it can't be a one for one. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that indifference. And the next one is the minimalization. Right. It's the white savior complex. Well, not all white people. Right. You know, come on. You know, it's like I brought this up in the last staff meeting. It's like somebody puts forth a a uh, um, a proposal for a new class on evangelism. But none of the books have any or the curriculum has anything to do with ethnic minorities. I'm like, well, wait a minute. We have an expert in our seminary, Sun Chan Ra, who mm -hmm. speaks specifically on this, and you don't even have him mentioned in the damn suggested reading. <laughs> okay? <laughs> this is an expert 
Can you imagine being in school with Carl Barth, all right, and you know, and teaching with him, and and not at least having some shit of his, you know, an article or something? No, of course not. But then I bring that up, and then it's like, oh wait, Dan, you're policing us. You're policing us, and you're telling us that you know, and they get all in the white feelings and stuff. Like I don't want nobody telling me how to run curriculum and and, and right. whatnot. Oh, okay, all right, all right, all right. right. I got that- you. And I saw the same, I see the same dynamic in what's happening with Relevant in some groups where it's like the process of accountability. See, I think that white people, they underestimate the level of accountability that white America needs from black people and people of color. I don't know how they do that because like we literally had thousands, hundreds of thousands of black people that forced this country to pass laws to integrate right so like i don't know how that memory we have some kind of amnesia culturally but i think they really underestimate that you have to police these systems you know right like, you you have to oversee them and keep them accountable i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's policing you know cuz you don't have the the structural power behind you to police you know right but there is accountability that you have to give it well, exactly, brother. I mean, this, I know our time is nigh. In fact, I'm just going to split this into two episodes because this is this is too too thick of material to get into one episode, man. And so I just, because I think that that's just it. It's like, and I feel like as, as people of color, we're always, we're always trying to come up with like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so now we're in an era where white white folks now and whiteness is using those same arguments against us. Like, well, why are you silencing me? Right. You know, it's like, well, should we have Nazis on campus? Well, you're, if, if not, then you're, you're against the first amendment. Why are, why are you holding me back from the first amendment? See, yeah. You only want to hear side stuff from your side of the story. Right. You don't want to hear my side. I'm not yeah. racist. Not right. Yeah. The alt right says they're not racist. <laughs> they're not right. But we want to see white people succeed over black people. And we're, we're better than black people. That's right. that's in their mantra, but we're not racist. <laughs> <laughs> See, okay, Doc. See, this is the thing of like when you talk about a theology of hopelessness, I I think about this all. I think about this very often. I'm just like sometimes I just be like, you know, white people are invincible. Like they just yeah yeah. They just they all they like. I'm surprised Muhammad Ali ain't one of their ancestors because they sure know how to dodge some stuff. You know, like they, <laughs> like they. They always find some way to pivot and maintain that position where, like, we can't really get on equal footing, you know? Right. And I don't want to be an Afro-pessimist about it, you know? Um, but there is actually, there is something that actually appeals to me from the the world of Afro-pessimism, which is... I just can't imagine anything about this world that wouldn't have to change if black people are going to be free, you know, like, I think it's just a total restructuring of the world as we know it. Everything has to change. Yes. Yes. Our relationship with the land has to change. Our economic systems have to change. Our common sense has to change. Our political systems have to change. Everything has to change. And I think the thing that white America doesn't realize is that when we talk about black freedom, like I said earlier, like that is the thing that's going to make everybody free since blackness is the anchor of the white supremacist system. Yes. You know, like 
the only way that we'll all be free is if we invest in black freedom. But it calls for the end of we end of the world as we know it. <laughs> it just things just cannot be be the same. Yes. Absolutely, man. And that's and this is where for me, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm opening up another can of worms here, brother. But I, I don't. Hope we got a good editor. <laughs> well, the editor is me, man. And like I said, this is going to be two episodes right here. Brother. This is going to be two episodes, maybe even three. But you know, I think, I think for me, man, this is where I, I want to hope that that is the case. It's like we we know, right? You got a old little girl who's up in the the what was it the the global peace the thing oh. where they're talking about the. Are you talking about Greta Thunberg? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, she and she she going in, right? She's oh, going in. Yeah, she is. She going hard in the paint. Right, right. She's going exactly. Exactly going hard them boards. So, so I think about that, and it's just like, man, somebody posed a question the other day on Twitter. It's like, man, what is it going to take to, you know, get gun, you know, like you know, some kind of gun like uh, control and stuff, right? And it's just like, well, but if white kids being killed doesn't compel you, and that's at the epicenter of like whiteness, right? It's like, oh, the kids, we gotta think about the kids. It's like crack cocaine wasn't an issue till it showed up in white schools. It's like school shootings wasn't an issue until Columbine. It's like, wait a minute, we was dealing with this shit for a long time. But if that doesn't compel you, Oof, yeah. so this is my thesis, man. And so, you know, part of my side uh, 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 hobby in what I do a lot of reading in, you know, when I'm not reading on social science crap and theology and stuff, man, um, is astrophysics and stuff, man, and ast astronomy mm. and stuff, man. And so okay. I, I don't know if white people want this planet anymore, man. I don't know. Mm. They talk about colonizing Mars and stuff. But I think it's going to be like Wally. Cause when I watch Wally, I don't see no black folk. Bro, okay, now we get into Afrofuturism, <laughs> and that saved my life, really. Yes, it's like when I mean, I re I remember coming home and just being like, man, just being so aware of the anti-blackness in the world, and realizing that yes, just like you said, white people do not envision us in the future. No, they don't. Like no. all of these these sci-fi movies and stuff like that. Like you, you see so little black people. Um, it's amazing the things that white people can envision in the future when you think about it. Like right. you can't, you can't imagine a strong, thriving population of black people in the future, but you can imagine like pink aliens with three heads and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But but no, like I I do I have heard about like it seems like the super rich. You know that some people are thinking that like they want to become transhuman, right? And right, become like part human, part part robot, basically, or something like that. You know, and and just colonize another planet and leave us all here. You know, right. just suck all the resources out of out of the planet. You know, have you heard of eco fascism? Too? Oh yeah, oh like, yeah, absolutely. That's on the rise. These Nazis that are green, you know, so they're like. Well, we want to save the planet, but just for us white people. That's what I'm that's yep. what be saying. Like white people are invincible. Invincible. Like, you would think that you would think that climate disaster would be something that all human beings could rally around and say, hey, you know what? Um, we all belong to the same species and we should be fighting this together. Right. But even even with the threat of human extinction, white people, some white people are still finding a way to segregate. 
know? Exactly. And that's what I'm saying, man. And that's what that's what gets me. And that's what gets me to, to not have a lot of hope, because I'm just like, we've all known about this for a long time. Even the documents that are just coming out, you know, from the 80s and 90s and stuff that are being declassified and whatnot, you know, have been pointing to this for a long time that we are in the middle of a major disaster. Just automation alone and artificial intelligence. Right. This is what corporate CEOs have been after for a long time. Can I get a machine to do what it took 10 workers to do, but I don't have right. to worry about that machine's uh, health benefits. I don't have to worry about a union. Exactly. I don't have to pay that. And then that machine can go for 24 hours. Right. It's the capitalist logics, right? Like exactly. They treated us like those machines in the 1600s, 1700s, right? We were the machines. We were not human. We're chattel, you know, Oh, okay. So, so now, now we, now they're finally close to actually having like non beings doing the work. Absolutely, and absolutely, and, and destroying the planet in the process. The the harm, you know, the harm is justified by the product, right? Yes. <laughs> and yep. I feel like that's yep. a through line to everything we've been talking about, right? Yes. Like some people are saying that to me about relevant, right? The the harm that is caused to people is worth the product, right? And we're saying that about the planet. The harm that fossil fuels are doing is worth the product, you know? Um, and it, 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 re it reiterates to me like that race is at the center of all of this stuff, right? Like white supremacy is at the center of all this stuff. You know, like we can't solve these things without dealing with white supremacy. Right, right. And that for me, man, is like, okay. And like you said, it's like, yeah, the, sure. There's, there are some great white folks who are in the process of, trying to learn and more and whatnot, but I'm just like, okay, a lot of these folks aren't necessarily in charge of organizations. They're, right. they, they can listen to us and they can empathize, but it's like, they don't necessarily run anything. Um, right. And the ones that continually do what happened to you at relevant are the ones in charge and stuff. It's like, I get their apology and I get now that any critique of that apology will now look at oh, where well, you're just being, you see you white black folk are never happy. They apologize. Yeah. What else do you want them to do? <laughs> yes, I want them to change. Like, like the only the only apology black people are interested in now is change. That's what right. I say. Like we, you know, because words and promises are easy. They don't they don't cost anything. Right. You know? And this is this gets back to something else I was talking about too, is like I feel like the idea of restitution, of of reparation, right? Yes. It's lost on an entire community of people. Like, I remember, okay, when I was living in New York, I had a roommate. I'm sorry to shout you out like this if you listen to the episode, but <laughs> my example. But I had a roommate and um I came home, I was away on a trip, I came home, and my bed was broken. Oh Lord. Now, oh, no. I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what was going on in my bed while I was away. Oh, Lord. Yeah, right. I, I did not believe the story that was told to me, though. Okay, so he apologized. And I said, well, no, you, you have to help me get a new bed now, though. Right. I mean, I'm glad that you feel remorseful. Now, let's now use some of that remorse and come up with some cash so that I have a bed to sleep in. You know, like, and I don't see how this principle is something that is hard for people to grasp. Like when there's been harm, you have to work to repair the harm. Right. Uh, 
I don't under, I don't understand. Like it seems like common sense to me, but I seem like, but it seems like there's an entire group of people that doesn't understand that concept. Yes. 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 And triple yes. And then that's, and I think that's right. That goes back to that indifference. It's just like, well, well, wait a minute now. I don't, I, my family was treated wrong. I came here. My family worked hard as Irish people. And why, why don't we get reparations for that? We were also beaten down and I'm like, oh, God damn. Like, I got to have this whole history conversation. That's why now I've just put stuff on tape, uploaded it online. And when people are like, why don't, why don't, where's your position on this? Like, oh, nigga, yeah. just, just go over here and listen, listen to that shit on my, my website, man. It just, <laughs> or, it's, or just stop talking to white people. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. Ex- I mean, exactly. I, I have white people that I love in my life. And so that's the only, like, I think the only reason that I didn't eventually just grow up to hate all white people is because I had some really good white friendships in my life. But I really do feel like I, I feel like for people that I don't know, like new white people to me, right? I, I'm, I'm just like, okay, we'll see. I have, a, I have, a, I have my guard up, you know? I have my guard up in a way that I had never had before in my life. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly, brother. I teach intercultural communication. Um, I've taught it for, for years. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a textbook now. Hopefully it'll be out um, in January. Um, and it's like white students are reading the exact same fucking script every single goddamn time. And it's like, <laughs> I get so exhausted. And I, and I actually talked to my mentor who was a communications that she, she was my undergraduate professor in communications. She's white. And like, she totally gets, and I remember that, you know, uh, I had emailed her, I don't know, about five years ago. And I was just like, Hey, listen, how you doing? Uh, I'd love to, you know, um, get some tips and pointers for you and whatnot from you. Cause you know, I want to, you know, take this class to the next level. She was like, look, Dan, I'll give you whatever you want, but I don't teach that class anymore. I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? She's like, I'm, she said, I'm just done. She said, I'm done trying to teach white students. She's like, Mm -hmm. as a white woman, she's like, it's just, it's horrible. She said, and I can't imagine what it's like for you. She's like, but I've, I've, I'm done. She said, it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. I'm like, man, if this is a white woman, (laughs) right. You know, so, and and I get this, there's the gender factor, but I'm like, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's it's the same thing. It's like, you talk about race. Like, so, you know, we were talking about white, um, fragility. So I defined it, presented the research behind it, presented the numbers behind it. And I still have a white student, like, yeah, well, that that definition can be applied to black people. I mean, right. I was watching the film 13th and I was asking black people to tell me, like, why were they so upset? And they didn't want to tell me. They didn't want to tell me. <laughs> they didn't want to tell me. <laughs> oh, my voice. oh, my God. That white voice is very funny. <laughs> like, <laughs> they didn't want to tell me. They didn't oh. want to tell me. She was just like, they didn't want to tell me. And they're fragile, too. And I'm oh. like, oh. And as a professor, right? You got to black students can get cussed out, thrown mm. to the side. But as a even as a full and tenured professor, I have to choose my words cor- carefully when I'm dealing mm. with white students. Because right. what I wanted to say was like, like, really, that's what your <laughs> ass is going to say. <laughs> I mean, I have I, I know. So I know lots of black people that are just like, I just don't fuck with white people anymore. Right. You know, like and. I, I can't say that I'm all the way there, but but the but as but as I gain more experience in life and doing this stuff, 
I'm I'm much closer to there than I ever was because of the stuff that you're talking about. It's like, like I said, white people aren't. <laughs> They're what? They're invisible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Man, brother. I mean, this has been an enlightening conversation and I really, uh, I could keep going. I definitely want to be conscious of your time. Um, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. This conversation has given me some life, even oh, though we don't so have much. any solutions. I really appreciate it. And I, I feel a little bit bad because I feel like I just took you all around the mulberry bush. There's, no, <laughs> no. We just talk about things and stuff. No, no. This was exactly what was needed. And we needed the space to, you know, to do this. Um, let me ask this. Where can folks find you, man, when they want to bring you out to, uh, um, you know, to get you to pay that honorarium? Uh, <laughs> the the, the 50000 that they pay. What was his name? The the guy from the alt-right? He just came out here oh. to one of the, 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 uh, the colleges. They paid that. They paid that mofo $50,000. Are you serious? White folks getting $50,000 for First Amendment. To talk about white supremacy. Right. 50000 more than See, what some people make in a year. You just made that in 45 minutes. See, Invincible. Where he speak at? Uh, was it Northeastern or something like that? And Sean Spicer, same thing. He was at North, Northeastern University, man. $55,000. $55,000. Yeah. 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 But white churches complain when I'm like, hey, I need $750, $750 to come out, you know, to drive two hours. Right. <laughs> oh, we can't afford that, sir. I mean, that's just, we're a small budget, you know. What's oh. up? Man, see, you about to open up a whole nother can of worms. Like, <laughs> You're right. I saw this, I saw these two videos of two black preachers. I'm not gonna name no name. Okay. But they was talking about how they're black Christians first before they talk how they're how oh, they're Christians before oh, they're black. Oh Lord. Yeah, yeah. And you hear how these white people shout them down. I said, all you gotta do is repeat back to the white people their own values and they'll shout you down. You know? Right. Right. It was like, oh, oh, that's gospel. Is it though? Right. <laughs> is it though? What is it though? Uh, like, is it who's it good news for? Like, let's think about it. Is it is it good news just for you? Because you know, like, there might be your sign. <laughs> you know. Anyway, yeah. If people want to get if people want to get in touch, um, my I have a website. It's andrearhenry.com. Okay. And we there's like a contact form there. So if people wanted me to come speak or um, I'm getting some calls for consulting now because <laughs> largely, largely because of the relevant situation, because I'm offering solutions and I'm, I'm, and I'm also, I'm working with, or I'm at least in touch with the team also and telling them like, Hey, like, you know, you might want to consider a restorative justice process. You might want to <laughs> call these people right, and, and see if there'll be accountability for you, you know? You you need to you need, you definitely have to have you know checks and balances to power in your organization and and there are a bunch of <clears throat> excuse me I'm seeing I'm seeing different leaders and organizations looking at that first article that I wrote and saying oh wow this pointed out a lot of blind spots for me so you know if people want to get in touch um, my website's a great way to do that um, on social I I think the best way to to connect on social is on Twitter. It's just Andre Henry on Twitter. And I, as always, I will put these in the show notes, whitehodgepodcast.com. Um, how I know there's some people listening right now who are wondering, man, how can I help? Like, this is amazing. I, I want to know. 
support the folks who are doing the independent work. I mean, the folks who are out here doing the heavy lifting are not the main stage speakers. They're not the ones who are traveling the country. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not beginning any person of color who's doing that. But I'm also saying that the folks that I see that are doing are independent right now because that's part yeah. of what folks have to do to survive. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be honest, you know, and and talk about some of these hard issues. It's really hard to be a part of another organization sometimes or to find an organization that will allow you to say the things that need to be said. You know, the things that we're facing in the world, like we can't continue to give people false impressions about the scope of the problems, you know, and that's part of the issue we're in with climate change is we're getting the most optimistic research and stuff being being told to us as part of the thing with racism, with everybody underestimating you know, the scope and the depth and the pervasiveness of the problem. And so for folk, for folks who are doing that work, <clears throat> you know, they often have to start their own thing to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's partly why I started my, my podcast, Hope and Hard Pills and uh, my email list, you know, and all that kind of stuff that's on my site is because I just realized like, as long as there is, as long as there is a, especially if there's like a Cameron Strang like that is telling that is making the final decision about what can be said and what can't be said. Like I'm going to be able to say what I need to say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 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 And so again, those listening, I'll put these in the show notes. Uh, check this brother out. I mean, as you can tell uh, from two episodes, these <laughs> two hours, we've, there's a lot to cover. And, and even now we've probably just scratched the surface. We didn't even get in really fully into Afrofuturism or Afro pessimism for no, that matter. Yeah, really, yeah. We got to have that conversation another time. Yes. Man, like Afrofuturism has really, really saved my my life. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly, man. Well, Brother Andre, thank you so much. Um, this is, you know, you've taken a lot of time out of your schedule. Blessings to you. Um, let me know how else I can support. Uh, you got a Patreon. Let me know. I'll put that up as well. Um, Cause yeah. that's why I, I forgot. I guess I forgot to ask. Like, what? Yeah, like what's what's going on right now? <laughs> as, as I ask you at the at the eleventh hour. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do have a Patreon where so I have a podcast first off and a mailing list called Hope and Hard Pills, and right. really the point of Hope and Hard Pills is to convey to people the power that we have collectively to create social change. You know. Yes. But it's also, it's like real, it's real hope. You know, it's not, it's not optimism for no reason. You know, it's saying these are the grounds on which we can be hopeful. And a lot of the grounds has to do with our collective power. So <clears throat> I send that out every week. We have a podcast that goes out every other week. And I've got to interview some amazing people, man. Like I've, I've interviewed folks that have started international movements, like the co-founder of Occupy Wall Street and people who have toppled dictators like Sergei Popovich, like they're on the show. And it really is so that this information about, you know, social change can be out there. We need, we need as many people as possible to understand the dynamics of social movements and to understand our power to work together. So that's what I'd be working on. And on Patreon, you know, we send out like the unedited versions of those conversations because we try to keep the, we've been trying to keep the regular episodes pretty short. But I mean, we have like 45 to an hour long conversations that we release on Patreon. Hmm. 
That's what's up. I love it. I love it. I love it. Why? We'll go there and we'll hook it up, man. That's that's what's up. Um, blessings to you, brother. Keep up the good work. All right, man. Have a good one. <laughs>